Grace Bible Church. Uh, a lot of a lot of new faces here. Uh, we, uh, as you might have realized, we're a little bit of a small church, but we are thankful for those who have come this morning, and we're thankful to see, as Jonathan mentioned, the excitement for us is that we get to see all these new faces, and we hope that that you guys will continue to join us and continue to be here and and make this your church home. If this is uh, if you're looking. Uh, for a church, for a church home. So again, we welcome you. We welcome you this morning. There's a lot of exciting things going on right now. A lot of exciting stuff. Jonathan mentioned a few of the things in the announcements, and we are working hard on just different aspects of our ministry. We want to see. Uh, we're trying to to move forward in establishing our leadership, and we're moving forward in establishing ministries for this coming year. And so. We're hopeful that, that it'll be a, an exciting, we know that it'll be an exciting year, and we're hopeful that some of you new faces will join us and serving, uh, being here together with us in, uh, here at this church, Grace, Grace Bible Church. Well, uh, this morning we're going to continue. We, we, this, this summer we've been working on, we've been working through uh, a few sermons on the church, and specifically we started... I started a few weeks ago on church membership, and now uh, last week I picked up on the ordinances of the church. First, uh, we looked at last week baptism, and this week we're now going to look at communion. So if you could take your Bible, your copy of God's Word, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read to you this morning. What is the major teaching in the New Testament on the or- this ordinance of the church, the Lord's table? I want to start in verse 17, and I'm going to read through verse 34. Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not know? Do you not have houses, that is, which in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in doing so, he is to eat eat the bread of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. 
For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, would, would, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned, condemned along with the world. So then, brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. As most of you know, as I said earlier, we've taken this time this summer to look more in depth at the church. We've worked to establish a biblical understanding of what the church is and how it is to function. Beloved, as we survey what I will call mainstream Christianity, we must admit that there's much confusion out there on the purpose and the character of the church. And we'd have to admit that, that understanding the church then, though, is crucial. We, we must understand the church because the Lord purchased it with his own blood according to Acts chapter 20. Now, several months ago, we took the time to establish our philosophy of ministry pillars. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says that the church of the living God is the pillar in support of the truth. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone. That's according to Ephesians 2.20. In other words, the church has been built upon the words of Christ and the, the apostles. And the church has been charged then to uphold the truth of the word of God. That's what we are charged by our Lord to do. Now at Grace Bible Church here in Gainesville, we are committed to the priorities of scripture. Therefore, we operate according to a biblical philosophy of ministry, which we have defined earlier in, in several sermons as the summation of priorities that we have derived from scripture. Now our Grace Bible Church philosophy of ministry pillars are these. The exaltation of God. We are committed to the exaltation of God. The second one is that we are committed to the exposition of Scripture. The third is we are committed to the equipping of the saints. And fourth, we are committed to evangelizing the laws. Now that may sound simple to you, and ultimately it is. Because what we want to do is we want to filter everything that we do. We want to, we want to, everything that we do to be looked at in light of every ministry to be guided then by this philosophy of ministry. We want to, we want to match it up and make sure that every ministry that we endeavor to do upholds these philosophy of ministry pillars. Or said another way, is upheld by those pillars. As such, we evaluate everything according to this philosophy of ministry. Now, we have taken the time these past few weeks to look at some crucial aspects of the church. More precisely, we've looked at how we as individual Christians are to relate to the church. Now, last week we started this two-part study on the church ordinances, baptism and communion. We started with baptism, which we defined as a symbol of the believer's burial and resurrection. Baptism, then, signifies the, the reality, the spiritual reality that believers have died to sin and have been raised to newness of life. We learned that water baptism, in, in many ways, is like a wedding ring. As such, baptism does, does not save us any more than wearing a wedding ring makes us married. But we must, we must realize that both are symbolic. Yet both are powerful testimonies 
of our fidelity. The wedding ring symbolizes our faithfulness to our spouse, while baptism symbolizes our fidelity to, our, to Christ our maker. Now, we also learned that at salvation, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. So if you are here today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit and you have been placed into the body of Christ, the church. And after you have been, were saved, God has commanded in his word that the church is to baptize you. As a church, we're commanded to baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before his ascension, Jesus commanded his disciples to go forth to all the nations and make disciples of them and to baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So not only is the church commanded to baptize believers, as a believer then, you are commanded to be baptized. It goes both ways. In his sermon at Pentecost, Peter commanded the people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of, the, of sins. That's in Acts 2.38. Now, what we learned is, is that we can translate this verse, repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, if you've been saved, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, your sins have been forgiven, and you're commanded then to be baptized. In Acts, this act of baptism signified that you had publicly committed to the church. And from that point forward, everyone knew, everyone knew that you were part of the church. That's the pattern set when we, when the church was born at Pentecost. Peter preached and commanded the people to repent and be baptized. Therefore, baptism became the public proclamation of the work that Christ had done in their hearts. And in doing so, they publicly proclaimed that Jesus you tie those two things together, Jesus, whom they crucified, was the Messiah, and that he had saved them from their sins. In Acts chapter 2, actually, we see the progression from hearing the word of truth to salvation to baptism to being added to the church. In Acts 2.41, it says this, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, we tend to, I know I tend to look at that, they were added about 3,000 souls, but I think we can't skip over the fact that it says that those who had received his word were baptized. So those who had believed his word, those who had been saved were baptized. And they were then added to the church. Acts 2.47, it says this, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 5, it says this, and all, the, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. Now, a few weeks ago, in our sermons on church membership, I challenged everyone here to consider whether they should commit to the church in a more formal way, to membership. I argue that when God saves you, he places you into the body of Christ, the church. He expects you to publicly identify with his people. In other words, <coughs> in other words, he makes you a member of his body, the, the universal church, the big C church. And he expects you to formally join and publicly identify with the body of Christ and membership at a local church. I don't think this is too strong. 
I don't think it's too strong because the local church is the physical manifestation of the universal church in a specific place at a specific time. Do you understand that? The local church is the manifestation of the big C church, the, the universal church, in a specific place at a specific time. You may be a member of several different local churches in your, in your lifetime, but in each instance, you have committed to the people of God in that specific time and at that specific place. Now, this week, we'll study communion, which is the second of the two ordinances of the church, first being baptism, second being communion. Earlier in this series, I defined communion as the public identification with the death of Christ on the cross. Now let's take a, a deeper look at the second ordinance of the church. As a church, we are commanded to observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of our Lord's death. Let me, let me first say, when we take communion, we gather with other believers, and we remember the death of Christ, and in doing so, we proclaim his death until he comes. This act, let me just say this as well, this act of communion, so Notice that we come together and we remember, we bring to our memory the, the, the life and death of Christ, and in doing so, we proclaim his death until he comes. But this act openly displays our love for both Christ and our love for one another. As such, communion then is an act of fellowship as we remember and proclaim the Lord's death together as a church. I believe that's Luke's focus in Acts 2.42. When he describes the early church, he says this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, most commentators believe that the breaking of bread refers primarily to the Lord's table. So you see that Luke puts together this idea of fellowship and breaking of bread or, or communion, the Lord's table. He also brings in the apostles' teaching, teaching the word of God, that goes along with it, and prayer. So we see that, that there's a focus on the apostles' teaching and fellowship and connection with the Lord's table. And today I want you to better understand the solemn and critical nature of communion to us as a church. Today we're going to study three critical facets of the Lord's table. A facet is defined as one side of something many-sided. Well, today we're going to look at our at the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, from three different perspectives. First, first you should, and you find this outline in your bulletin, first you should recall its foreshadowing. Recall its foreshadowing. If you turn to Exodus chapter 12, let me set the stage for you. Israel had been in exile in Egypt for 400 years when at that time, God called a man named Moses, who had grown up in the courts of Pharaoh. God called Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand that he, that, that Pharaoh, that is, let the people of Israel go from captivity or from, from slavery. Now, Pharaoh, you might remember this story, Pharaoh flatly refused God's demand through Moses. And he refused him over and over and over. He chose to keep God's people in slavery, and he made their labor even more difficult. In response, God continued to send plagues. He, he continued to send 
plagues on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And these plagues, as you may recall, these plagues continued to escalate in nature. They became unbearable, yet Pharaoh continued to stubbornly resist God. These plagues demonstrated to Pharaoh and all of Egypt that God was sovereign over all his creation, including Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. Now, despite the great difficulty created by these plagues, the scripture says that when that Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let the people go, he, he actually hardened his heart against God's demand and he would refuse to let the people go. So after the ninth plague and the continual hardening of his own heart, the scripture says that Yahweh actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 11.10 tells us Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened, uh, Yahweh hardened the Pharaoh's heart and did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Now we pick up at that point in Exodus 12 as God prepares to send the tenth and final plague on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. In this narrative, God begins to institute a memorial of remembrance for the sons of Israel. God wanted the people to remember what he was about to do. He wanted them to remember how he miraculously delivered them from the land of Egypt. Now, what's interesting is, is that they hadn't yet been delivered. Significantly, God gives them the instructions for this memorial prior to the 10th plague, further demonstrating his power. The fact that he was going to bring this to pass. It was, it was going to happen. Pick up in Exodus 12, 3, it says this, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. In 12, 5, In 12, 5, it says that the lamb is to be unblemished, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it for the until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, you should take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roast it with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Look at verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner. Your, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This, this is the, then he describes the tenth plague. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses, verse 13, where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So here God describes the Passover meal, which will memorialize the tenth plague and the deliverance of God's people. They were to remember the time. It's significant. I want to, I, I want to over and over, I want you to understand that, that they are to remember the time when he came through the land of Egypt and he struck down all the firstborn of Egypt and he passed over those who had the blood of the slaughtered lamb on their doorpost. Look at verse 14. Look at the text. Now this day, this day will be a memorial to you. 
and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Now this verse should catch your ear. First, we, we have stated this is a, a memorial of remembrance which God instituted for the, for the people to remember what God had done delivering Israel from Egypt. God also called for His people to celebrate the Lord's Passover as a permanent ordinance. Quite literally, He's saying this should be a statute forever. This is an ordinance which God commanded His people to, to perform. Very important. It was a very important event. And God wanted His people to always remember. Look at verse, seven, or verse 15. The seven days you shall eat, the, eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. In verse 17, you shall also observe the feast of the unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host, host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. Again, we see it's to be a permanent ordinance to the Lord. If you look at verse 24, you'll see why he instituted it as a permanent ordinance. And I want you to see this because I want you to understand how important this is. Look at verse 24. It says this, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you what this right means to you, you shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt. When he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes, and the people bowed low and worshipped. You see, God instituted Passover so that the children, the generations to come, would have occasion to ask their parents why they are observing this rite. You see, Passover was instituted so that God's people would never forget what God had done for them. Now, jumping ahead just a bit, this is instructive for but what we're going to learn as, as what we're going to learn about the Lord's table. We are to use the Lord's table, communion, as a time to instruct our children. We are to instruct them on what the Lord has done in delivering us from the from our bondage to sin. See, they're going to ask. They're going to recognize that this is different. They're going to ask questions, and we are to, we are to teach them as, as they ask these questions, as they wonder why we're doing this. I can remember growing up and observing communion and wondering, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? And asking my, my parents. Now, this ordinance of Passover, we must recognize that it not only looked back at what the Lord had done, but it looked forward to the sacrifice of the Messiah. Now, this ordinance continued in Jerusalem and evolved, in, evolved, that is, into one of the Jewish festivals or feasts. That after Josiah, the king of Judah, found the book of the covenant in the house of the Lord, he led Israel to a miraculous and courageous return to the Lord. Now, part of this return was a return to the observance of Passover as God had intended it. 
In 2 Kings 23, 21, it says this, Then the king commanded, that would be Josiah, commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to Yahweh, your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. And it says this in 2 Kings 23, 22, Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in the day, all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. It's a profound statement. It's a profound statement. This renewed vigor, though, for God, for his word, didn't last. And the, the pure observance of the Passover was interrupted when the people of Judah and Israel turned their backs on God. And ultimately, they were taken into captivity, which ended the worship of Yahweh in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that was underscored by the glory of the Lord leaving the temple as, as witnessed by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, when the Jews began to return from exile in Babylon, they returned and they rebuilt the temple. In Ezra chapter 6, the temple was completed and dedicated. Now, after this, the people again observed Passover in Jerusalem. It says this in, in Ezra 6.19. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers and the priests and for themselves. Now, what I want you to understand about this is, is that the restoration under Ezra and Nehemiah prepared the way for the coming Messiah. Prepared, prepared the way for the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, as a point of application, we need to understand our God's heart and wanting his people to remember his work. He wants us to remember all that he has accomplished. He, want, he wants us to remember who he is. He created the world and all that it contains. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. He hung the earth on nothing. He delivered Israel from Egypt. And, and he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Beloved, God wants you to remember. God wants you to remember that He has saved you by His mighty hand. God wants you to proclaim the fact that His He sent His only Son to die on a cross. He wants you to remember and worship Him for what He has done. And this leads us to the second critical facet of the Lord's table. You should remember His fullness. You should remember His fullness. Now, we need to make a connection between the observance of Passover and the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, 7, uh, Isaiah says this of the Lord, of the Messiah, that is. says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a, like a lamb, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. In other words... The servant, Isaiah's servant, the Messiah, assumed the role of the sacrificial lamb. This verse picks up on the imagery, if you haven't uh, made the connection, it picks up on the imagery of the blood of the unblemished lamb which was placed on the doorpost so that the Lord would pass over that house. And John 1, John the Baptist, picks up on this metaphor. And it, from uh, This metaphor from... Isaiah 53 and Exodus 12. He says this in 
and John 1.29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Peter makes this connection even more explicit in 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. He says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. So we see that Peter then makes this, this, this connection clear. The, the Apostle John makes the same connection in his vision recorded in Revelation 5-6. He says this, And I saw between the throne with, with the four living creatures and the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if slain. Revelation 5a, it says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. In Revelation 5.12, it says, if you're not certain that he's making connection to the Passover Lamb, he says this. He says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, and glory and blessing." Now let's make a full connection then to Jesus' death on the cross. Turn to Luke 22. Luke 22, picking up in verse 1, it says that now the the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him, the Lord Jesus, to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him apart from the crowd. So stopping right there, we see that Passover was approaching, this this festival of Passover and and the the or this this observance of Passover that is, and the circumstances surrounded the surrounding Jesus' death were already in motion. The chief priests and scribes were seeking to kill him, but they weren't openly doing so because they were afraid of the people. Look at verse 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the, the Passover for us so that we may eat it. Drop down to verse 13. And they left and found everything just as... He had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now we have to remember, well, let's just keep going in verse 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had 
Taking a cup and giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink the, of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. Now, let's stop right there. This cup that Jesus is, or that, we're, that Luke is describing and Jesus is talking about is the cup of thanksgiving. It's the first of four different cups. These cups were passed during a tr the traditional Passover meal. Traditionally, after drinking this cup, this cup of thanksgiving, bitter herbs were dipped into fruit sauce while someone explained the meaning of Passover. That's what we were saying, that, that someone teaches and they teach, the, they teach the family about Passover. Now, after this, the people would have joined together to sing the Hallel, which means praise. This consisted of Psalms 113 through 118. Now, I find it interesting that this morning that we are reading these psalms over the, uh, we've been reading, I find it interesting actually this, that we've been reading these psalms over the past few weeks. And that specifically we read Psalm 117 today, which is part of the Hallel. Here we see, what we're, what we're seeing here, what is being described here is a beautiful depiction of our Lord spending one last night with his disciples. Our Lord is singing familiar psalms with his, with his disciples, with his people. And it is especially beautiful to consider that Jesus had looked forward to this time and had earnestly desired to observe Passover with them. Now, I hope that you can sense the tenderness of our Lord in Luke's description. He knew that his death was at hand. He knew that this would be the last time that he would eat the Passover until it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He knew that he was going to go to the cross, and he knew that, the, that his death would be a fulfillment of this Passover meal. Now, we must remember, that the, again, that the Passover looked back at what God had done in delivering Israel from Egypt, but it also prophetically looked forward to when the perfect Lamb of God would go to the cross and die for our sins. Now, after singing of praises, the second cup was passed just prior to the breaking of bread. Now, he says this in, in 22.19, and when he had taken, or he says this, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, let's stop right there and say that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. This, this bread that he's breaking is simply bread. It doesn't become the body of Christ. It doesn't become literally his flesh, as many believe. You see, this is, a, as we've said, this is a memorial ceremony. We eat the bread in remembrance of our Lord and in remembrance of his death on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Now, following the breaking of the bread, the roasted lamb would have been eaten. And after prayer the third cup would have been passed and the rest of the Hallel would have been sung. The third cup was called the, the cup of blessing. This cup was, is, this is the cup that Jesus referred to in verse 20. He says this, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now Jesus used this third cup to symbolize the blood he would shed for sin in just a few hours. This cup of blessing now represented the blessing of salvation through the new covenant which was instituted by his blood on the cross. Now again, 
I want to make sure you understand. There is nothing mystical about the wine or the juice which was used for communion. This juice or this wine, the juice that we use, the wine, is not used, or not actually, that is, not actually, does not become Jesus' blood. Doesn't actually become Jesus' blood. Clearly, clearly, it says Jesus and his disciples were drinking wine. They weren't drinking his blood. They were drinking wine. Now, there would, would have been a fourth and final cup passed just before leaving. This cup would, would have looked forward to the coming kingdom. Now, I think it's worth looking at, or, or at least acknowledging, that in Ezekiel 45.21, Ezekiel describes a Passover feast during the Millennial Kingdom. This Millennial celebration will bring to full remembrance all that Christ has done on our behalf. It is... It's wonderful, if you think about it, to contemplate that all of God's people will be there and they will bring glory to him in that amazing time for all that he has done in delivering us from our bondage to what? To sin. Beloved, you and I, this is what's amazing to me. I hope it is to you. Beloved, you and I will join together singing the Hallel and remembering that Christ died for us. We'll, we'll just listen to some of these words. We'll sing these words. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Psalm 116.5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. And yes, our God is compassionate. Psalm 117, we read this morning, Praise the Lord all the nations, laud him all the peoples. Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Beloved, after they sang these words that night, towards the end of supper, Judas slipped out to go to the chief priests and the scribes, or the elders. He went out to betray our Lord. Just a few hours later, just after this, he, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They tried him in a series of mock trials. He was sent to the cross to be crucified. He fulfilled the role of the Passover lamb. Everything was completely fulfilled when Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. Beloved, Jesus was sacrificed as the perfect Lamb of God, so that you might have forgiveness of sin, so that you might walk in newness of life. Beloved, Christ's sacrifice as a perfect Lamb of God has profound implications on you. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says this, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrifice. Beloved, we are to recognize the fullness of the Lord's table so that we can recognize the fullness of what Christ has accomplished at the cross. We are to be unleavened because we are unleavened because we have been separated from the dominion of sin and death by the perfect Passover lamb. Our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to the third facet of the Lord's table. 
you should recognize its form. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, we read this earlier. Most conservative scholars believe that this instruction by Paul is the earliest mention and instruction on the Lord's table. It's probably written even earlier than the gospel. So, so what we what that helps us understand is when Paul says in verse 23 that I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, he actually received this revelation directly from the Lord. He didn't read it. He didn't receive it from other gospel writers. Now, in, in verse 17, we saw earlier, we saw that, that Paul is, is admonishing them because they come together, verse 17, for the better, not, or not for the better, but for the worse. And he says, he says this in verse, in verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not for the Lord's Supper. Those are harsh words from the apostle, right? And you you may think that you're meeting together for this love feast, for this for the Lord's Supper, but the truth of the matter is, is because of how you are acting, because of what you are doing, it is not truly the Lord's Supper. Their gathering, the gathering had become so twisted that it, it had completely lost its purpose and meaning. They were no longer having fellowship around the remembrance of our Lord's death. They were sinfully indulging themselves and they made this feast, this love feast, a complete mockery. That's what really was going on. He says in verse 21, For in, eat, in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? No. No, in this I will not praise you. You see, Paul is absolutely clearly not pleased in what he's hearing concerning the actions of the Corinthians. He says, I can't praise you for how you're acting because your behavior does not represent Christ. It doesn't represent the instructions that I had given to you prior to when I was there. So Paul then gives instruction regarding the proper form of Lord's Supper. And that's what he's doing in verse 23. So what I want to do is conclude today by looking at six truths, hopefully they'll go quickly, which will help us recognize the proper form of the Lord's table. The proper form of the Lord's table. First, the Lord's table is a memorial celebration. It's a memorial Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Those are... I, I would assume very familiar words from Luke 22 that we just did or looked at earlier. They obviously describe the same events. Very clearly, Paul reminds the, the, the Corinthians 
of the solemn nature of the Lord's table. We are, are to partake in remembrance. And the question is, how are we to remember? How are we to remember? Well, listen to John MacArthur. Listen to John MacArthur what he has to say. He says this. He says, we are to reach back to that event and pull up into the into the presence and pull it up, pull it all up into the presence, so that we are living in the conscious presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. When a Hebrew remembered, it meant to him that his total mind and soul and heart was filled with the consciousness of the reality of the one he remembered. So Jesus is saying, and I continue to quote, do this, and when you do it, would you call me into your conscious mind? Not just my dying for you, but my living for you, my whole incarnation. Would you commune with that in your mind, your conscious mind? And I continue to quote, you see, you haven't remembered the Lord until you cleared out all other things in your mind and called him into your conscious presence, end quote. Here at GBC, here at Grace Bible Church, we normally partake communion on the first Sunday of the month. The Bible doesn't prescribe when to do it or how often. We can observe communion at any time. But it is, a, it is to be done in memory of Christ. It is to be done as a solemn, as a solemn, as a, as a solemn event. We observe, observe the Lord's, the Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, on the first Sunday, so that there's a regular pattern. We remind you on the Sunday before, and we remind you during the service, so that you can prepare your hearts for that remembrance. The Lord wants you to bring him to your conscious memory and to meditate on all, on all that he has done for you. That includes his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension. Everything that he has done. We've seen then that the Lord's table is a, to be a memorial celebration. Secondly, the Lord's table is to be a proclamation of his death. A proclamation of his death. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now I just said that the Bible does not prescribe how often that we are to partake of the Lord's table. But Paul says that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. That's why we do it regularly. Now, I've been a part of a church, my wife and I, my family, we've been, we were a part of a church that, that observed it every week. And they did so because they wanted to proclaim the Lord's death as often as possible. You know, it reminded me, I said something earlier, have you ever been a part of, a, of communion as an unbeliever? Ever been a, have you, if you were an unbeliever and you saw the, the, plate, the plate pass and you wondered? Pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? Very uncomfortable. That's what we want. We want people to be uncomfortable. We want to be hospitable, but we want them to have to think through. We want them to have to consider what the Lord has done. You know, I can remember being in that position. I was as nervous as my, as my dad used to say. I was as nervous as a long-tailed tomcat in a room full of rocking chairs. 
uh, sweat was pouring off of me, and I, I, I was nervous because I didn't know, um, because I could see what, I had to deal with what they were talking about, I'm talking about as, a, as an older, as a, as, an, as a young adult. You see the Lord's table, when we proclaim, when we observe the Lord's table, we proclaim his death, and we have to deal with that. We have to deal with the fact that we we worship a crucified Christ. We worship a crucified Messiah who died a bloody death, who suffered the wrath of the Father in my place. Third. Third, the Lord's table is an opportunity for believers to confess sin and to reconcile with other believers. Say that again. The Lord's table is an opportunity for believers to confess sin and reconcile with other believers. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, it says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul just flat out says that when we partake in an unworthy manner, that we're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And in doing so, we are mocking the sacrifice of Christ by holding on to our sin as we partake. So, when we partake in communion, we give you an opportunity to confess sin. 1 John 1-9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The expectation in communion is that we confess sin so that we're not partaking in an unworthy manner. And I also mentioned that it gives us an opportunity to reconcile with other believers. We are not to partake if we, have, if we know that someone holds something against us that we can go and deal with. We're to leave our offering, according to Matthew 5, and go and, and go to that brother or sister and deal with those issues. So when we regularly partake in communion, it forces us to go and be reconciled with our brother or sister, or, or we're partaking in an unworthy manner, making us guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Serious, right? J.C. Ryle says this, are we in the habit of coming to the Lord's table? If so, in what frame of mind do we come? Do we draw near intelligently, humbly, and with faith? Do we understand what we are doing? Do we really feel our sinfulness and need of Christ? Do we really desire to live a Christian life as well as profess the Christian faith? Happy is that soul who can give the satisfaction give a satisfactory answer to these questions. Let him go forward and persevere. But he's drawing attention, end quote, but he's drawing attention, J.C. Ryle, to the fact that we need to come, we need to come knowing what we're doing. We really need to feel, as he says, our sinfulness and our need for Christ. We need to really desire to live a Christian life or live the Christian life and profess the Christian faith. Understanding that partaking in communion is a, a proclamation that we identify with the Lord's death. 
And in doing so, we confess sin and we work to be reconciled with other believers. Four, the Lord's table is an occasion for believers to examine themselves. The Lord's table is, a, is an occasion for believers to examine themselves. You know, in life, we often forget, right? We're forgetful. We're forgetful people. We just move along. But Paul says, but a man must examine, verse 28, but a man must examine himself. And in doing so, he is to eat of the, the bread and drink of the cup. So, so, again, we see this idea of examination. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, I believe that we are to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. That the Christian life is a life of examination. A life of, of looking at our, our sin and, and confessing our sin. Keeping a, a short account of our sin. Asking others to hold us accountable for our lives. Because we're so... So quick to slide, so quick to fall away. So the Lord's table, we, we regularly partake in the Lord's table because it gives us an opportunity to examine. Fifth, the Lord's table is a time to warn the brethren of the dangers of walking in unrighteousness. The Lord's table is a time to warn the brethren of the dangers of walking in unrighteousness. Look at verse 29. I wish I had time to really unpack all of these verses, but we're at a 10,000 foot level. It says this, For he who drink, eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, and sick, and a number sleep. You see, when we partake, and we have not judged our body, when we have not judged ourselves rightly, we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. Because, again, we're holding on to that sin, and we're making a mockery of what Christ has instituted. And Paul underscores the significance of this. When he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick. They, many among you are, are sick because, because you are not partaking in a worthy manner. You're not judging the body rightly. And some have, a number even sleep, meaning that they died because they, they have not judged themselves rightly. So I turn that around to say that it is a time for, for, to warn the brethren of the dangers of walking in unrighteousness. If you're walking, if you're a believer and you're walking in unrighteousness, there, there's great danger there. There's grave danger, especially as you come to the Lord's table and you partake in the Lord's table in, in this unworthy manner. James Montgomery Boyce says this, at the heart of the present significance of the Lord's table is our communion or fellowship with Christ. Hence the term communion service. Now let me stop there and remind you that I tied together this idea of fellowship. Not only fellowship with Christ, but fellowship with one another around the Lord's table. That we come together around the Lord's table in fellowship, proclaiming the Lord's death. 
James Montgomery Boyce goes on to say, in coming to this service, the believer comes to meet with Christ and have fellowship with him at his, at his invitation. The examination takes place because it would be hypocrisy for us to pretend that we are in communion with the Holy One while actually cherishing known sin in our hearts. End quote. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. It's double-mindedness. To come and say that you are having fellowship with Christ, the Holy One, as James Montgomery Boyce describes Him, while actually cherishing own sin in your heart. Meaning you haven't confessed it. Meaning you haven't confessed it to our Lord and haven't repented and turned from it. And you continue to partake. Brethren, it is dangerous to walk in unrighteousness. Especially proclaiming that you are righteous. And the Lord's table gives us an opportunity to warn you of this. To warn myself of that. Number six. The Lord's table is a time for solemn reflection. The Lord's table is a time for solemn reflection. Look at verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that he will not be condemned along with the world. Beloved, we have this time. We... We give you, we tell you when we're going to have communion. We do it at, on the first Sunday of the month. We are commanded to do so. We tell you when it's going to be. We announce it at the beginning of the service so that you will ready your heart and ready your, your mind to, to remember, to bring to your conscience, remem conscience remembrance of the Lord Jesus and all that he has done. And if we have judged ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. I'm going to end with this quote by J.C. Ryle. And I quote, The benefits the Lord's Supper confers are spiritual, not physical. Its effects must be looked for in our inward man. It was intended to remind us by the visible, tangible emblems of bread and wine that the offering of Christ's body and blood for us on the cross is the only atonement for sin and the life of a believer's soul. It was meant to help our poor, weak faith to closer fellowship with our crucified Savior and to assist us in spiritually feeding on Christ's body and blood. It is an ordinance for redeemed sinners. By receiving it publicly, we declare our sense of guilt and need of a Savior, our trust in Jesus and our love to Him, our desire to live upon Him and our hope to live with Him. Using it in this spirit, we shall find our repentance deepened our faith increased, our hope brightened, and our love enlarged. Our besetting sin weakened, 
and our graces strengthen, it will draw us nearer to Christ. Nearer to Christ indeed. Let us pray.